Hello everyone, grab some snacks, grab a drink, and please remember not to open your window no matter what you see or may hear outside of the vehicle. And with that, please buckle up and let's get a move on to exit 666. The final part of The Windigo by Algernon Blackwood. A wall of silence wrapped them in, for the snow, though not thick, was sufficient to deaden any noise, and the frost held things pretty tight besides. No sound but their voices and the soft roar of the flames made itself heard, only from time to time something soft as the flutter of the pine moth's wings went past them through the air. No one seemed anxious to go to bed, the hours slipped towards midnight. The legend is picturesque enough observed the doctor after one of the long pauses, speaking to break it rather than because he had something to say, for the Wendigo is simply the call of the wild personified, with some natures here to their own destruction. That's about it, Hank said presently, and there's no misunderstanding. When you hear it, it calls you by the name right though. Another pause followed, then Dr. Cathcart came back to the forbidden subject with a rush that made the others jump. The algory is significant, he remarked looking back into him into the darkness for the voice they say resembles all the minor sounds of the bush wind falling water cries of the animals and so forth and once the victim hears that he's off for good of course his most vulnerable points moreover are said to be the feet and the eyes the feet you see for the lust of wandering and the eyes for the lust of beauty the poor beggar goes at such a dreadful speed that he bleeds beneath the eyes and his feet burn Dr. Cathcart, as he spoke, continued to peer uneasily into the surrounding gloom. His voice sank into a hushed tone. The Wendigo, he added, is said to burn his feet, owing to the friction apparently caused by its tremendous velocity, till they drop off. The new ones form exactly like its own. Simpson listened in horrified amazement, but it was pallor on Hank's face that fascinated him most. He would willingly have stopped his ears and closed his eyes, and he dared. It don't always keep to the ground neither, came in Hank's slow, heavy drawl, for it goes so high that he thinks the stars have set him all afire, and it'll take ground thumping, jump sometimes and run along the tops of the trees, carrying its partner with it, and then dropping him, just as a fish hawk will do dropped a pickler to kill it before eaten. And its food, of all the muck in the whole bush, is moss. And he left a short, unnatural laugh. It's a moss eater, is the Wendigo. He added, looking up excitedly into the faces of his companions. Moss eater, he repeated, with a string of most outlandish oaths he would invent. But Simpson now understood the true purpose of all this talk, what these two men, each strong and experienced in his own way, dreaded more than anything else was silence. They were talking against time. They were also talking against darkness, against the invasion of panic, against the admission reflection might bring that they were in the enemy's county, against anything. In fact, rather than allow themselves thoughts to assume control, he himself, already initiated by the awful vigil with terror, was beyond both of them in his respect. He had reached a stage where he was immune, but these two, the scoffing, analytic doctor and the honest, dogged backwoods huntsman, each sat trembling in depths of his being. 
Thus the hours passed, and thus with lowered voices and a kind of taut inner resistance of spirit, this little group of humanity sat in the jaws of the wilderness and talked foolishly of the terrible and haunting legend. It was an unequal contest, all things considered, for the wilderness had already the advantage of first attack. And of a hostage, the fate of their comrade hung over them with a steadily increasing weight of oppression that finally became insupportable. It was Hank, after a pause longer than the preceding ones that no one seemed able to break, who first let loose all the pent-up emotion in very unexpected fashion. By springing to his feet and letting out the most ear-shattering yell imaginable into the night, he could not contain himself any longer, it seemed. To make it even beyond an ordinary cry, he interrupted its rhythm by shaking the palm of his hand before his mouth. That's for Devago, he said, looking down at the other two with a queer, defiant laugh. For it's my belief, the sandwich oaths may be omitted, that my old partner is not far from us in this very minute. There was a venomance and recklessness about his performance that made Simpson, too, start to his feet in amazement and betrayed even the doctor into letting the pipe slip from between his lips. Hank's face was ghastly, but Cathcart showed a sudden weakness, a loosening of all his facilities, as it were, then a momentary anger blazed into his eyes, and he too, though with deliberation born of habitual self-control, got upon his feet and faced the excited guide, for this was unpermissible, foolish, dangerous, and he meant to stop it in the bud. What might have happened in the next minute or two, one may speculate about, yet never definitely know, for the instance of profound silence that followed Hank's roaring voice, and as though in answer to it, something went past though the darkness of the sky overheard a terrific speed, something of necessity, very large, for it displaced much air, while down between the trees there fell a faint and windy cry of a human voice, calling in tones of indescribable anguish and appeal, Oh, oh, this fiery height, oh, oh, my feet, of fire, my burning feet of fire. White to the very edge of his shirt, Hank looked stupidly about him like a child. Dr. Cathcart, some kind of unintelligible cry, turning as he did so with an instinctive movement and blind terror towards the protection of the tent, then halting in the act as though frozen. Simpson, alone of the three, retained his presence of the mind a little. His own horror was too deep to allow of the immediate reaction he had heard that cry before. Turning to his stricken companions, he said most calmly, That's exactly the cry I heard. The very words he used. Then lifting his face to the sky, he cried aloud, Defago, Defago, come down here to us, come down. And before there was a time for anybody to take definite action, one way to another, there came the sound of something dropping heavily between the tree. And before there was time for anybody to take definite action one way or the other, there, was, there came the sound of something dropping heavily between the trees, striking the branches on the way down and landing with a dreadful thud upon the, throsen, upon the frozen earth below. The crash and thunder of it was really terrific. That's him. Help me, good God, that's him came from Hank in a whispering cry, half-choked, his hand going automatically towards the hunting knife in his belt. And he's coming, he's coming, he added, an irrational laugh of horror at the sounds of heavy footsteps, crunching over the snow, became distinctly audible, approaching through the blackness towards the circle of light. And while the steps with their stumbling motion 
moved nearer and nearer upon them. The three men stood round the fire, motionless and dumb. Dr. Cathcart had the appearance of a man suddenly withered. Within his eyes, even they did not move. Hank's suffering shockingly seemed on the verge again of violent action, yet he did nothing. He too was hone of stone, like stricken children they seemed. The picture was hideous, and meanwhile their owner, still invisible, the footsteps came closer. Crunching the frozen snow, it was endless, too prolonged to be quite real. This measured the pitless approach, it was accursed. Chapter 8 Then at length the darkness, having thus laboriously conceived, brought forth a figure. It drew forward into the zone of uncertain light where fire and shadows mingled. Not ten feet away, then halted, staring at them fixedly, the same instant and started forward again with the spasmodic motion as of a thing moved by wires and coming up closer to them. Full into the glare of the fire, they perceived then that it was a man, and apparently that this man was Defago. Something like a skin of horror almost perceptibly drew down in the moment over every face and three pairs of eyes shone through it as though they saw across the frontiers of normal vision into the unknown. Defago advanced, his tread faltering and uncertain. He made his way straight up to them as a group first, then turned sharply and peered close into the face of Simpson. The sound of a voice issued from his lips. Here I am, boss Simpson. I heard someone called me. It was a faint, dried-up voice, made wheezy and breathless as an immense exhortation. I'm having a regular hellfire kind of trip, I am. And he laughed, thrusting his head forward into the other's face. But that laugh started the machinery of the group of waxwork figures with the wax-white skin. Hink immediately sprang forward with a stream of oaths so far-fetched that Simpson did not recognize them as English at all, but thought he had lapped into the Indian or some other lingo. He only realized that Hank's presence thrust thus between them was welcome, uncommonly welcome. Dr. Cathcart more commonly and leisurely advanced behind him, heavily stumbling. Simpson seemed hazy as to what was actually said and done in those next few seconds for the eyes of the detestable and blasted visage peering at those such close quarters into his own utterly bewildered his scenes at first. He merely stood still. He said nothing. He had not the trained will for the older men that forced them into the action in defiance of all emotion and stress. He watched them moving as behind a glass that half destroyed their reality. It was dreamlike, perverted. Yet, though the torrent of Hank's meaningless phrase, he remembers hearing his uncle's tone of authority, hard and forced, saying several things about food and warmth, blankets, whiskey and rest, and further that whiffs of the penetrating, unaccustomed odor, while yet sweetly bewildering, hailed his nostrils during all that followed. It was no less a person than himself, however less experienced and adult than the others, though he was. He gave instinctive utterance to the sentence that brought a measure of relief into the ghastly situation by expressing the doubt and thought in each one's heart. It is you, isn't it, Defago? He asked under his breath, horror breaking his speech. And at once, Cathcart came burst out with the loud answer before the other had time to move his lips. Of course it is, of course it is, only can't you see? He's nearly dead with exhaustion, cold and terror. Isn't that enough to change a man beyond all recognition? It was said in order to convince himself as much as it is to convince the others. The overemphasis alone proved that. And continually, while he spoke and acted, he held a handkerchief to his nose, 
that odor pervaded the whole camp. For the defago, who sat huddled by the big fire, wrapped in blankets, drinking hot whiskey and holding food in wasted hands, was no more like the guide that they had last seen alive than the picture of a man of sixty is like a derogatory type of his early youth in the costume of another generation. Nothing can really describe that ghastly character, that parody, masquerading there in the firelight as defago. From the rooms of the dark and awful memories he still retains, Simpson declares the face was more animal than human, the features drawn about into the wrong proportions, the skin loose and hanging, as though he had been subjected to extraordinary pressures and tensions. It made him think vaguely of those bladder faces blown up by the hawkers on Ludgate Hall that will change their expression as they swell and as they collapse eminent of faint waiting imitation of the voice. Both face and voice suggested some such abominable resemblance, but Cathcart long afterwards, seeking to describe the indescribable, asserts that thus might have looked a face and body that had been in air so rarefied that the weight of the atmosphere being removed, the entire structure threatened to fly a and become incoherent. It was Hank, though all distraught and sharing with tearing volume of emotion he could neither handle nor understand, who brought things to a head without such much of an ado. He went off to a little distance from the fire, apparently so that the light should not dazzle him too much, and shading his eyes for a moment with both hounds, shouted in a loudly voice that held anger and affection dreadfully mingled, You ain't Defago. You ain't Defago at all. I don't give a damn. But that ain't you, my old pal of twenty years. He glared upon the huddled figure as though he would destroy him with his eyes. And if it is, I'll swab the floor of hell with a wad of cotton wool and a toothpick. So help me the good God. He added with a violent flinging of horror and disgust. It was impossible to silence him. He stood there shouting like one possessed, horrible to see, horrible to hear. Because it was the truth. He repeated himself in fifty different ways, each more outlandish than the last. The woods rang with echoes at one time it looked as if he meant to fling himself upon the intruder, for his hand continually jerked towards the long hunting knife in his belt, but in the end he did nothing, and the whole tempest completed itself very shortly with tears. Hank's voice suddenly broke, he collapsed on the ground, and Cathcart somehow or another persuaded him at last to go into the tent and lie quiet. The remainder of the affair, indeed, was witnessed by him from behind the canvas his white, terrified face peeping through the crack of the tent door flap. Then Dr. Cathcart, closely followed by his nephew, who so far had kept his courage better than all of them, went up with a determined air and stood opposite of the figure, Defago, huddled over the fire. He looked him squarely in the face and spoke at first. His voice was firm. Defago, tell us what happened, just a little, so that we can know how best to help you. He asked in a tone of authority, almost of command, and at that point it was command. At once afterwards, it changed in quality, for the figure turned up to face him, so piteous, so terrible, and so little like humanity. And the doctor shrank back from his as form, something spiritually unclean. Simpson, watching close behind him, says he got the impression of a mask that was on the verge of dropping off, and that underneath that they would discover something black and diabolical revealed in utter nakedness. Out with it, man. Out with it. Cathcart cried, terror running neck and neck with entreaty. None of us can stand this much longer. It was the cry of instinct over reason. And then Defago, smiling whitely, 
answered in that thin and fading voice that already seemed passing over into the sound of quite another character. I seen that great Wendigo thing, he whispered, sniffing the air about him exactly like an animal. I've been with it too. Whether the poor devil would have said more or whether Dr. Cathcart would have continued the impossible cross-examination cannot be known, for at that moment the voice of Hank was heard yelling at the top of his voice from behind the canvas that concealed all but his terrified eyes. Such a howling was never heard. Oh, his feet! Oh God, his feet! Look at his great changed feet! Defago's shuffling where he sat had moved in such a way that the first time his legs were in full light and his feet were visible. Yet Simpson had no time himself to see properly what Hank had seen, and Hank has never seen fit to tell. In the same instant with a leap like that of the frightened tiger, Cathcart was upon him. Cathcart was upon him, bundling the folds of blankets about his legs with such speeds that the young student caught little more than passing glimpse of something dark and oddly measured. Where moccasin feet were ought to have been, and saw even that but with uncertain vision. Then before the doctor had time to do more, or Simpson time to even think a question, much less ask it, Defago is standing upright in front of them. Balancing with pain and difficulty, and upon his shapeless and twisted visage, was an expression so dark, so malicious, that it was in true sense monstrous. Now you seen it too, he wheezed. You seen my fiery, burning feet, and now that it is unless you can save me and prevent it, it's about time for it. His piteous and beseeching voice was interrupted by the sound that was like the roar of wind coming across the lake. The trees overheard their tangled branches, the blazing fire bent between its flames as before a blast and something swept with a terrific rushing noise. About the little camp seemed to surround it entirely in a single moment of time. Defago shook the clinging blankets from his body, turned towards the woods behind, and with the same stumbling motion they had brought him, was gone. Gone before anyone could move a muscle to prevent him. Gone with an amazing, blundering swiftness that left no time to act. The darkness positively swallowed him, and less than a dozen seconds later, above the roar of the swaying trees and the shout of the sudden wind, all three men, watching and listening with stricken hearts, heard a cry that seemed to drop down from the great height of the sky distance. Oh, oh, this fiery height! Oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire! then died away into untold space and silence. Dr. Cathcart, suddenly master of himself and therefore of the others, was just able to seize Hank violently by the arm as he tried to dash headlong into the bush. But I want to know you, shrieked the guide. I want to see this ain't him at all, but some, some devil that shunted into his place. Somehow or another, he admits he never quite knew how he accomplished it. He managed to keep him in the tent and pacify him. The doctor apparently had reached a stage where reaction had set in and allowed his own intimate force to conquer. Certainly he managed. Hank admirably. It was his nephew, however. Hithorto so wonderfully controlled, who gave him most cause of anxiety for the commutative strain had now preceded a condition of hysteria which made it necessary to isolate him upon a bed of bows and blankets as far removed from Hank as was possible under the circumstances. 
And there he lay as he watches of that haunted night, passed over the lonely camp crying, startled sentences and fragments of sentences, into the folds of his blanket, a, qu a quantity of gibberish about speed and height and fire mingled oddly with biblical memories of the classroom, people with broken faces all on fire are coming at a most awful, awful pace towards the camp. He would moan one minute, and the next would sit up and stare into the woods, intensely listening and whispering, how terrible in the wilderness are, are the feet of them that until his uncle came across to the change the direction of his thoughts and comfort him. The hysteria fortunately proved but temporary. Sleep cured him, just as it cured Hank. Till the first signs of daylight came, soon after five o'clock, Dr. Cathcart kept his vigil. His face was color of chalk. There were strange flushes beneath the eyes, an appalling terror of the soul battered with his will, although those silent hours, these were some of the outer signs. At dawn he lit the fire himself, made breakfast, and woke the others, and by seven they were well on their way back to home camp. Three perplexed and afflicted men, but each in his own way, having reduced his inner turmoil to a condition of more, of more or less systemized order again. Chapter 9 They talked little, and then only of the most wholesome and common things, for their minds were charged with painful thoughts that clamored for explanation, though no one dared to refer to them. Hank being nearest to primitive conditions was the first to find himself, for he was also less complex, and Dr. Cathcart's civilization championed his forces against an attack similar enough. To this day, perhaps he is not quite sure of certain things. Anyhow, he took longer to find himself. Simpson, the student of divinity, it was who arranged his conclusions, and probably with the best, though not most scientific appearance of order out there, in the heart of the unreclaimed wilderness, they had surely witnessed something crudely and essentially primitive, something that he had survived somehow, the advance of humanity had emerged terrifically, and betraying a scale of life still monstrous and immature, he envisioned it rather as a glimpse into the prehistoric ages, when superstitions gigantic and uncouth still opposed the hearts of men, when the forces of nature were still untamed, the powers that they may have haunted a primeval universe not yet withdrawn. To this day, he thinks of what he termed years later in the sermon, savage and formidable potencies lurking beyond the souls of men, not evil perhaps in themselves, yet instinctively hostile to humanity as it exists. With his uncle, he never discussed the matter in detail, for the barrier between the two types of mind made it difficult. Only once year later, something led them to the frontier of the subject, of a single detail, of the subject, rather. Can't you even tell me what they were like? he asked. And the reply, though conceived in wisdom, was not encouraged. It is far better you should not try to know or to find out. Well, that odor, persisted the nephew. What do you make of that? Dr. Cathcart looked at him and raised his eyebrows. Odors, he replied, are not so easy as sounds and sights of telepathic communication. I make as much or as little probably as you do yourself. He was not quite so glib as usual with his explanations. That was all. At the fall of day, cold, exhausted, famished, the party came to the end of the long protege and dragged themselves into the camp that at first glimpse seemed empty. Fire there was none, and no punk came forward to welcome them. The emotional capacity of all three was too overspent to recognize either surprise or annoyance, but the cry of spontaneous affection that burst from the lips of Hank as he rushed ahead 
of them towards the fireplace came probably as a warning that the end of the amazing affair was not quite yet, and both Cathcart and his nephew confessed afterwards that they saw him kneel down in his excitement and embrace something that was reclined, gently moving besides the extinguished ashes that fell in their very bones that this something would prove to be Defago. The true Defago returned, and so indeed it was. It is soon told, exhausted to the point of emaciation, the French-Canadian, what was left of him, that is, fumbled among the ashes, trying to make a fire, his body crouched there, the weak fingers obeying feebly the instinctive habit of a lifetime with twigs and matches, but there was no longer any mind to direct the simple operation. The mind had fled beyond recall, and with it too had fled memory. Not only recent events, but all previous life was a blank. The time it was a real man, though incredible and horribly shrunken on his face, was no expression of any kind whatsoever, fear, welcome, or recognition. He did not seem to know who it was that embraced him or who it was that fed, warm, and spoke to him in words of comfort and relief. For alone, the broken beyond all reach of human aid, the little man did meekly as he was bidden, the something that had constituted him individual had vanished in forever. In some ways, it was more terribly moving than anything they had yet seen, that idiot's smile as he drew wads of coarse moss from his swollen cheeks and told them that he was a damned moss-eater, the continued vomiting of even the simplest foods, and worst of all, the piteous and childish voice of complaint in which he told them that his feet pained him, burned like fire, which was natural enough when Dr. Cathcart examined them and found that they were both dreadfully frozen. Beneath the eyes, there were fur indications of recent bleeding. The details of how he survived the prolonged exposures or of where he had been, or how he covered the great distance from one camp to the other, including an immense detour of the lake, on foot, since he had no canoe, all his remains unknown. His memory had vanished completely, and before the end of winter, whose being witnessed this strange occurrence, Defago, bereft of mind, memory, and soul, had gone with it. He lingered only a few weeks, and what Punk was able to contribute to the story throws no further light upon it. He was cleaning fish by the lake shore about five o'clock in the evening, an hour that is before the search party returned. When he saw the shadow of a guide picking its way weakly into the camp in advance of him, he declares, came the faint whiff of a certain odor. The same instant, old punk started for home. He covered the entire journey of three days as only Indian food could have covered it. The terror of a whole race drove him. He knew what it all meant. Defago had seen the Wendigo. And that is the end of The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. Alright everyone, we're finally at our exit 666. Grab your things, unbuckle that seatbelt, and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.